Hi, this is Damien Christoph from 100 Not Out and The Wellness Guys. Become a change maker in the health industry today. All you need to do is enroll for the functional nutrition course and become an internationally recognized expert on the vitalistic philosophy of food and nutrition with our friends at the Functional Nutrition Academy. Register now and receive a six-week bonus accreditation course providing you with the business tools to start and grow your own business and a whopping $1,000 discount. So don't delay and start your health career today at www.thewellnesscouch.com forward slash functional. TheWellnessCouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Sit back, light the fire, kick your shoes off, because it's time for That Paleo Show with your favorite caveman, Brett Hill. Welcome to That Paleo Show, making a paleo lifestyle easy and accessible for everyone. I'm Brett Hill, and this week I'm joined by Dan French. He's someone who's been obsessed with three things. Persuasion, education, and comedy. He combines these all together and got a PhD in rhetoric, which I'm going to have to talk to him about. He went to work as a college persuasion professor, but at the same time began performing all around America as a stand-up comic. He's been doing live shows, he's been doing radio, he's been doing morning television, working in Hollywood as a late-night writer and producer... But he's decided now that he wants to combine his passions and start an online university. So he's created an online university called Dan's Online University. He describes as Einstein meets Seinfeld, which I love because I am a big Seinfeld fan. Um, So I'm really excited to have this interview because I think it's going to be lots of information, but I think it's going to be very entertaining at the same time. So welcome to the show, Dan French. Hey, Brett. How's it going in uh, Australia today? It's great, mate. It's great. I think we've just hit the first day of spring, so winter is finally over, which I'm a bit excited about, and hopefully getting warmer from here. So uh, it's, a, it's still a okay. little bit brisk this morning. I know it's evening where you are, but, uh, but it's not too bad. It's not too bad. Yeah, we just finished up summer in Texas, so yeah. it, uh, you know, it's, it's like Australia. It's hot. You know, like yesterday, I stepped in a melted bird. It's really hot here, so... <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. That is that is hot. Um, mate, this is a great story. I love this idea. I think, you know, this concept of blending information and, and comedy is, is brilliant um, because people are just so time poor nowadays and they're so, uh, I guess, overblown with information that, that making it funny and entertaining, I think, is just so important. But before we get into the nitty-gritty of that, I'd, I'd just love to know, how did this all start for you? Like, wh- when did you get interested in education and when did you get... When did you realize you might be okay at comedy? Well, I kind of ran two careers for a long time. So I, I went straight through my undergraduate education and went right in and got a PhD um, down in Texas. And then I went to Florida for a while. And I started teaching uh, college courses when I was 23 years old. So I've always really loved education. I love information. I love learning. And it just sort of naturally blended over into you know becoming a professor and and sort of building a little bit of that career, and I really enjoyed teaching. And rhetoric is a—it's just a—it's la- a language degree, really. It's nice. it's the study of effective messaging. So it studies any kind of any kind of text whatsoever, but especially public text. If you're trying to get large groups of people to do something, how do you actually go about doing that? So things like you know podcasts about paleo <laughs> um, are perfect examples of of 
uh, sort of modern rhetoric. You know, how do you how do you take something that's foreign to people, like the idea of a paleo diet, and first of all inform them, but also get them to feel a certain way about it and to try it and accept it in their lives. And so, yeah, I've always been fascinated with rhetoric as a uh, just just a an area of study. So, can you define rhetoric for me? Because I think of rhetoric, and I kind of I don't know. I think I have sort of negative connotations with it. But what is the actual definition sure. of rhetoric? Well, the, the reason why people have negative de- de- definitions of it and connotations is because of it's associated with politics. That's the most obvious use of rhetoric. It's where people use it, you know, very clearly to try to persuade people. Mm. And so you look at it, and you're like, it's it's based on deception. It's manipulation. They're never telling the truth. And so that's what most people think of as rhetoric. But rhetoric is literally the study of any message that tries to have an effect on another person. So anything that, that's persuasive, that's designed to be persuasive, is within the field of rhetoric. And some of that is deception, some of it's politics, but it spreads out into everything. So education and teaching, a really good teacher is basically a really good rhetorician. They figure out, what does this audience need in order to accept my message? And they adjust the message to fit the audience. So, what about comedy, Dan? How did you get into comedy? Where where did you first start? Yeah, I was the the exact same time I started working as a professor. I also started uh, working at a stand-up comedy club. This was in Louisville, Kentucky, where I'm originally from. And... They had just opened a comedy club, which is literally a few miles away from the university, and I read an article about it in the paper. And I've always loved comedy. I've always been a comedy writer. Like almost everything that I wrote, um, even in college and even in academic courses, I would do sort of you know, creative uh, approaches to it and funny. I've always loved comedy. And so I went down there just looking to see what was up. And for whatever reason, I applied for a job there as a door guy at night. And during the interview, for some reason, I just told them that I did stand-up comedy, which I'd never done. <laughs> and I, th- I guess I thought it would make me more hireable or something. But what it did was tell them uh, to take me downstairs and introduce me to the club manager and book me to go up on stage that night. Oh, wow. <laughs> so literally, like, well, okay, you got five minutes tonight. You can go up on our open mic night. And that was my introduction to stand-up comedy. And how did you go? Like, first night, no preparation, five minutes on stage, how was it? Uh, you know, it was actually back then, like, it was a great comedy club, and there were 200 people there. Uh, it was a Tuesday night, it was a great audience, and you almost you almost had to do something horrible not to get laughs. And I, I remember the first, night, the first thing I talked about was I had a brother who was 12 years younger than me, and I'd been picking him up from daycare, and just everybody just the weird environment of daycare, how it's supposed to be good for the kids. And I'm like, it's basically uh, apocalypse now for kids. Like you can see them hiding in the corners, waiting for their parents. And they've got round nose scissors waiting to cut your hamstring as you walk past. It's a really weird environment in there. And so I wrote a routine about it and went up that night and told it and got a few laughs and I was hooked. I mean, literally that was when I was 23 and I'm now in my fifties and I still do stand up. That's awesome. That's awesome. I think you're a very brave man. I think uh, the concept of stand-up is uh, 
is just frightening. I remember we did a one of our first live events we did for our podcast show. We did uh, at the Adelaide Fringe Festival, uh, which was fantastic. And um, but they only had two categories, and and honestly, I can't remember what one of the categories was, but the other one was comedy. And uh, and we kind of had this health show we wanted to do, and we didn't really fit into either category. And so uh-huh. uh, and so we had to put ourselves into this comedy category and try to be funny. And uh, it was it was an interesting experience. My co-host had no idea what I'd sort of signed them up for, and. Um, but it was good fun. It was good fun. But it is, you know, the, the concept that, you know, you're ex- people are expecting you to be funny is a bit daunting, I reckon. Yeah, it's it's sort of like anything else, you know. Uh, some people are kind of made that way. I'm, I'm sort of weird in comedy because I'm half analytical, I'm half anal- uh, intellectual, and I'm half creative. So I like talking with comedians and just being silly and just doing silly jokes. But I sort of go back and forth. And so most, most comedians are not analytical. They just, they just mess with everything. You know, it's just for play. And I kind of mix them together. So it's a little different. But, like, for me, like, stand-up isn't daunting at all anymore. I learned how to basically do stand-up comedy in biker bars in Florida when I was getting my Ph.D. <laughs> uh, and so I've gotten to the point where, like, a lot of times, most of the time when I go on stage anymore, I don't even bring up material. I just talk to the audience because it's so much more fun to create comedy in the moment. And it's basically, you know, you just learn techniques for it and your brain just starts to do it really fast. So um, let's talk about how you're sort of merging these two together then, and particularly, I guess, in terms of health, because that's what we talk about a lot on this show. And uh, so in terms of, you know, bringing education and comedy together, um, why do you think that's so important in terms of our healthcare and health landscape? There's so many people trying to spread the message that they believe in about health. And you know this. There's so many different perspectives from vegan to raw vegan to, you know, to moderation to paleo. It's, it's an endless variety. And they all basically promise the same stuff about <laughs> what they can do for your health and where they can get you. And there's a point where everybody just turns it off, especially in the health industry. Mm. Everybody believes it's a scam. They believe it overpromises. They don't believe it's claims anymore. And so you have to come with an, a way to get through all of that, all that resistance. And comedy's perfect. Like, I literally, so I do a 75-minute one-person show titled Comedian's Diet, How I Lost 125 Pounds, One Joke at a Time. And I do it in comedy clubs. So people are paying 20 bucks to come out on a Saturday night and laugh, and I'm doing 75 minutes of fat jokes to them, essentially. <laughs> and, you know, they're paying me to, to hear it, to listen to it. But I know, I know how to craft stand-up, so I took all the stuff I'd learned in alternative nutrition, and I do paleo. Um, and I've been paleo for seven years. And, you know, paleo, if you're going to do it right, you have to really study it. And so what my brain does, it studies it, organizes it, and then it wants to play with it and just start turning it into comedy. So that's what I started to do. I started, people kept asking me after the shows, they would be like, how'd you lose all that weight? And it, it's almost like they were suspicious of me. <laughs> you know, they didn't, they didn't want to believe that you just <laughs> do that by changing how you eat. And they're like, what'd you actually do? Did you... You know, did you get surgery? Is that what it was? You know, did you get stapled? Or I'm like, no, I, I literally just changed the way I eat. And so I started writing jokes about it. Um, you know, even just telling people that you, lose, that you lost 125 pounds, I'm like, that's a lot of weight. You know, that's like losing a chubby jockey or <laughs> uh, a ballerina who ate a biscuit. That's like losing a supermodel with a deep thought. <laughs> and people like... 
you know, so they wanted to hear more about it. So I just started expanding it into into jokes, and I basically take people all the way through the things that I didn't do until I get to the point where like that's like the first twenty minutes of the show because there's so many things that people tried. And then I'm like, well, the first thing I ever did that actually made any difference whatsoever was I gave up all American food, like anything made by an American corporation. I don't eat it, you know, because it's all crazy processed food. Yeah, you know, and pe- people grow up eating this and don't even know what it is. Like, do you guys have Velveeta cheese over there? I don't think we do. Um, not that I know of. It's it's processed cheese, and it's not cheese. It's some kind of cheese food. <laughs> like, you can, you can <laughs> that's always a good start. Like, they have to sort yeah. of quantify it. But yeah, it's so. You know, I just take them through all that stuff and say, look at the things that you actually eat, and you tell me what it actually means. Like, there's there's a pizza called a tombstone pizza. <laughs> like, they're telling you it's going to kill you. You know, the name itself says death, but you're yeah. like, oh, this is great. Yeah. No, we have we have that kind of stuff over here. Like, you have, like, the heart attack burgers, you know, where it's like, it's just this massive burger stacked upon, stacked upon, stacked. That's just, yeah, it, it's by definition terribly unhealthy. But some people are appealed by it. Some people, that's appealing to some people. They kind of like the idea of being, uh, I guess, unhealthy because you know there's, there's so much. Uh, I guess uh, there's so many, as you said, there's so many people trying to pressure you into being healthy and to do it this way and to do it that way. That I think sometimes feel like they just want to rebel against that and do the exact opposite and just sort of prove it. So Dan, obviously the the paleo comedy, obviously very entertaining, obviously very funny. Uh, but how do you find people respond to it? Do they take it on board? Do you think they make changes as a result of it? Yeah, I think so. And I designed the show so that it's it's mostly comedy, but it also has persuasion laced into it. You know, and I do that on purpose. I'll tell people at the beginning of the show, I'm like, this is all about comedy. We're all having fun. But at some point I'm go- tonight, I'm going to persuade you about something. And, you know, I know as soon as I tell people that, they'll be like, you're not going to persuade me. I'm <laughs> I'm unpersuadable. You know, and everybody likes to think about themselves that way. Nobody likes to think that they are undefended against persuasion and I tell them it's okay you know um it'll just happen at some point and you won't resist it and you'll do what i want you to do and it's a joke I, you know they laugh at it but essentially i get their attention and once i get them relaxed after 45 minutes of jokes and plus they're drinking and they're relaxed and they trust me then i start talking about paleo and i do it for about a minute and basically i just tell them you know n- none of you uh know anything about your food None of you know anything about your body. Your body's basically a series of chemical factories inside of you, like 50 chemical factories, all interconnected, uh, that you can't see and that you have no chemistry degree and you're supposed to be in charge. And it just makes no sense. Um, <laughs> you know, I know that, like, I'm not, I know a lot about food because I self taught, uh, but I, it's not even close to what somebody who's actually trained in it and studies it full time for a living does. So I tell people, just accept you're ignorant. It's okay. Uh, and then I send them to, I usually start with Rob Wolf's uh, website or maybe Mark Sisson. Yeah. And I'm like, just go to Rob Wolf. Just check it out and listen to a little bit of the podcast. And I defy you not to like that guy. <laughs> you know, he's awesome. And yeah. as soon as he starts to talk, people feel comfortable. And he's a regular guy and he's not preaching to every, anybody. And so basically, I just... I get their attention, get them to trust me, and then I shove them over to the actual experts. So let's talk about this trust thing because I find it fascinating. You know, I, re- I read this book called um, 
The Psychology of Persuasion by a guy called Cialdini. It's it's a really popular book. I'm sure you've heard of it. And it's fascinating. Yep. Like these, these these sort of techniques that people use to persuade people to do what they want them to do. And, and it's fascinating. And, and there's all these sort of case studies of how it works and why it works. So, it, is that the sort of stuff we're talking about in terms of persuasion? Yeah, that's what I that's what I teach for a living. When I was uh, a professor, so I was uh, part of Palo FX down here in Austin. Uh, I've been a part of it off and on for six for its entire uh, existence, and so I've run panels down there, basically called titled "Selling Paleo." How do you actually persuade people to accept an, a different life lifestyle and a different way of eating? And the, one of the problems I have in the paleo uh, world is that. There are a lot of really smart people, a lot of really good nutritionists, a lot of really good physiologists and doctors, but none of them have been trained how to do persuasion. So yeah. they're all up there trying to talk about, you know, getting people to accept uh, paleo or motivating them, and they really have not been trained and they don't know much about it. So one of my points is like, you know, America has figured out how to sell. America can sell things better than <laughs> any, any civilization in all of history. So instead of doing all this very rational discussion and here's what's good for you and all that, which people tune out, what you really need is paleo hooters. Like, do you guys have hooters <laughs> over there? I, we don't have hooters, but I know what hooters is. You know, it's, a, it's popularized on you know, American TV shows and stuff, obviously. So we know what it is. Yeah, you know, it's, and that's, they, they told you how to sell alcohol, sex, and sports. You know, <laughs> and then you can, you can just change out the food. So I'm like, you know, I wanted to start a chain of uh, paleo restaurants called Rumps, <laughs> you know, and just have people like if they come in, they can they can start the first day and you weigh them when they come in. And then if they start to lose weight, you lower the prices based on, you know, how well they do. <laughs> that sounds like that's going to be a bit controversial, I reckon. Well, that's the whole thing. Entertainment, like if you watch our president right now, he's basically just a controversialist he, he comes yeah. from reality tv yeah and all he knows how to do is cause trouble <laughs> yeah and he's like just clickbait right yeah you know but it's it's entertainment it forces everybody to watch <clears throat> and so paleo and i think a lot of health theory uh health approaches have this problem where they're trying to sell their stuff and persuade with rational uh rhetoric and it, it doesn't it doesn't compete well against entertainment and so, you know, many people listening to this show will be listening to this thinking, okay, all right, well, you know, I've got my husband, I've got my daughter, I've got my, you know, co-worker who I've been trying to convince that they need to try out this paleo diet for years. I've been trying the rational thing. It's not working. Um, so, you know, tell us, Dan, how do we go about um, irrationally convincing these people to start thinking about taking up paleo? Well, the... Like, as soon as you say thinking, you're in trouble, because that's all about rationality. So, really, like, okay, I'll give you a real quick, here's a real quick rhetoric lesson. You ready? Go ahead. Okay, here we go. There are four things you can use in rhetoric. There's mythos, logos, pathos, and ethos. Mythos is a story. Logos is all the logic and information. Pathos is the feeling of things. And ethos is your character. So, essentially, the strongest one of those is ethos, and the weakest one is logos. So if you have to give a bunch of information to people, they click out, they can't process it, they don't really understand it, and you lose them. Mm. And that's what everybody tries to do when they sell uh, non-paleo people on paleo. They're like, look at all the good things it can do. And they, they talk about your, you know, 
your cholesterol level and your numbers and all, and they don't they don't understand any of that. What they understand is they look at somebody like an ethos and like, well, are you in shape or not? Like I've always said, the vegan movement dies the day all the leadership has to take off its shirts in public. <laughs> they look terrible. I mean, I, I ate vegan for a while when I first moved back to Austin when I was trying to find something different to get out of Western uh, consumption food. And it, it just didn't feel right. Like, <laughs> I used to say, if you go into a party and you can't tell if a fight breaks out, if the women or the men would lose, <laughs> it's, it's not the right food for human beings. Uh, most paleo people, especially the leadership, are in amazing shape. You know, And so that's, if you're just doing story... If you just put people's images up there next to each other, like yes. if you put Mark Sisson, who's in his 60s, up there, and you put Rob Wolf and all these different guys, um, and some of the female athletes, oh my God, if you ever go to Paleo FX, if they would just go around taking pictures of just what it does as far as uh, the health and appearance of you know, the, the female paleos, it would, it would blow everything else away. You know, in fact, Paleo suffers from the fact that sometimes that it looks too healthy. You know, the women are too muscular, the men are too in shape, and everybody's like, I could never do that. I'm like, no, that's basically what the human body's supposed to do if you get out of the way and you put the right food in it. Yeah. So, Dan, how did you discover paleo? Where did your journey start? I was literally, the like, I'm from Kentucky, which even, you know, in Australia, you probably know is a redneck southern state. We, we, have, and, we know Kentucky fried chicken. That's, that's good. Yeah, same thing. Our, literally, our state is famous for fried chicken. That's how healthy Kentucky is. You know, it's a horrible place to grow up. I was overweight my whole life. And uh, it wasn't until I turned 40 years old and I weighed 300 pounds. And I'm like, I've been trying to lose weight every day of my life. Like, mm. it wasn't like I was trying to just let go and just eat whatever. I was always thinking about it. I'm like, something is wrong here. And what I realize is it's me. I'm ignorant. I literally know nothing about food or, or mm. my body. And yet I'm in charge, which makes no sense at all. So I, I started going and finding podcasts. That's how I got into vegan. I had a mm. friend who was vegan. And then I dated somebody who was vegan and she cooked. Um, so I tried that food for a while. And it just seemed impossible to me to change over to a different type of eating like that, a drastic change from the way I'd eaten my whole life. And I realized I could do it. But then about six months into it, I, you know, I'd lost some weight and I gained it back and I wasn't, it just didn't seem right. So I was looking for something else and I found Rob Wolf's uh, Paleo Solution podcast. And within five minutes of listening to it, I'm like, yeah, this guy sounds like me. Sounds like a regular guy. Um, Sounds like he understands what the issues are. And so <laughs> I literally went out and bought steaks and brought them home <laughs> to my vegan girlfriend. And she's like, what are you doing? I'm like, We're, oh, I'm paleo now. <laughs> How did that go down? Uh, not so good. Not so well, but the paleo <laughs> lasted. She didn't. Yeah, okay. All right. So it was, it was a choice you had to make and a uh, fork in the road. Yeah, it wasn't over the food, but uh, it was definitely something that got her attention. She's like, how did you just go from... I'm like, eh, it just didn't work. Yeah. And so I've eaten paleo ever since. So tell us and about... I, and I like it, you know. Tell us about your first steak, having been vegan for a while. Uh, two full uh, boneless ribeye steaks uh, that I cooked up, and I told her she could have one if she wanted, and she didn't. So I, I ate pretty much both of them. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, that feels right. Yeah. That feels like I'm a dude again. 
<laughs> so what did you notice when you changed from vegan to paleo? Um, I, you know, more than anything else, like I was eating all the time as vegan, mm. you know, and it wasn't particularly enjoyable eating. I wasn't a bad cook. I learned some things about vegan cooking, but once I went paleo, like I have two kids, so I have a son who's mm. 15 and he's been paleo since probably he was 12, 11 or 12. Yeah. And my daughter who's 18 and they were little back, they were little back then. And in order to get little kids to eat healthier food you've got to learn to cook like they'll eat it but it has to taste really good (laughs) because all the all the capitalist consumption food tastes really good because it's spiked right with all the salt and sugar and everything else so you've got to create food that can compete with that otherwise kids aren't going to eat it so i got i got very good at cooking and um you know it trained it changed the way the kids eat um and so for me once i learned how to cook and figured out a whole lifestyle around that. It was it was not that hard. And in terms of your health, I mean, what were the immediate changes you noticed? Oh, I lost um, I lost forty pounds. Uh, I stopped drinking alcohol as well, which always uh, was is interesting to tell people in comedy clubs when I <laughs> when I'm like, "What did you do?" And I'm like, "Well, I stopped drinking alcohol." And they're like, "What? Boo!" <laughs> they're like, "Is that legal? Can yeah. you legally not drink?" Um, so I had uh, I had started getting uh, arthritis in my joints, especially my hand joints, and I think that was corn. Actually, I don't think it was gluten reactivity. It was corn because I can still, if I have some corn chips or something, every once in a while, like I can I can kind of feel it in my joints. Hmm. Uh, and so that's a pretty close reactivity. Um, I have rosacea issues uh, that went away and will come back if I overcarb, but. Um, those were probably the main things. The main thing was, I mean, I don't know, my, my grandfather and my father both suffered from horrible arthritis, like debilitating. And I'd seen what that did. And I'm like, I don't want, that. there's no way I'm going to go through that. And that's one of the things, too, when you think about persuading people, that you've got to get them into an emotional state where they're ready to be persuaded. Mm. Just doing it rationally doesn't work. Uh, suffering is an amazing motivator for persuasion. So yeah. literally, you kind of got to help help people suffer more, so that they, they yeah. know that they need to change, or, or maybe show them where they're already suffering. Yeah, you know, kind of. But everybody gets so good at just ignoring that stuff and not even attaching it to their food, right? Yeah, you know, they don't believe they don't believe it's connected. It's it's fascinating, like, oh, you know, it? people are just yeah. I was talking about this so one the other day, the just about that connection between food and behavior and kids. You know, we're talking about how. So many parents just don't believe it's connected and how just fascinating that is because, I mean, in kids, I mean, you'd know with kids, it's so obvious. Like they eat something and then 10 minutes later, their behavior just totally changes. And and it astounds me that people don't make that connection. Like from a, you know, from a, from a professor, I'd like to know, you know, what is that? What is it that sort of blinds people to that connection? Well, cause and effect is really easy to skew. Like a close connection between cause and effect requires like a, a very quick uh, response so it's an abstraction you eat something but you don't in- instantly feel differently you know mm-hmm. unless you overeat and you feel bloated and stuff like that but people can just ignore that because it's not real suffering it's just discomfort mm-hmm. um, but cause effect if you're going to use cause and effect arguments it has to be very closely tied like if people you know smoked like with alcohol you can you can get drunk uh, you know 
and experience bad effects. One of the reasons why I stopped drinking was because hangovers are horrible. <laughs> like I've always had really bad hangovers. If it, and I know exactly what it's connected to. There's no doubt that when I wake up in the morning, I'm like, oh, that's directly connected to. And everybody tries, like I tried everything. I'm like, okay, switch to a different alcohol. You know, uh, don't mix alcohols. Don't drink draft beer. All these different things that people do so they continue their deviances, which is essentially what everybody wants. Yeah. They don't really want to go healthy. They want to keep all their deviances but avoid the consequences. <laughs> yeah. And, if, and they believe they can do that because it's constantly sold to them that they can do that. So you've got to close down that cause and effect connection and not let them have any wiggle room whatsoever. So literally, if you drink one thing of alcohol and you threw up for the next 14 hours on every sip of alcohol, nobody would drink alcohol. But there's a delayed effect and there's abstraction in between it. And, and so it's easy to convince yourself that it's not that bad for you. And food is even more abstract. Yeah. Yeah, well, it can be hard to make those links. kind of. And as you said, I think part of it is that we're, we're constantly told that those links don't exist or, or, you know, you don't have to do the hard work, you know, you don't have to uh, change your diet. You can just take this pill or take this supplement or, you know, whatever, and just keep eating whatever it is you want to eat. Yeah. I had a, a guy yesterday, one of my clients that I, I work with, I do, I do persuasion consulting for uh, a lot of startups and small businesses in Austin and a lot of them are health businesses. And one of the, one of my clients, really great guy, really smart, um, former professional basketball player who now has a, sort of boutique um, clinic where he consults with people and does training. And he said during one of the presentations when I was watching him that nobody's putting a gun to your head to make you eat food. And I'm like, afterwards I was talking to him, I'm like, you know, that's not true. There's an invisible gun to your head and it's an AK-47 and it's called the persuasion machine that the Western culture has created to sell its food. It's literally going off all the time right at people. So you'll take like you know, gym persuasion or nutritionist persuasion, which is fairly weak persuasion, and they'll walk out the door and they'll get assaulted by the strongest persuasive machine ever created, and it doesn't ever stop. So it's really, you know, a lot to ask of people to be able to defend themselves against that without helping them actually have techniques to defend themselves. And do you ever have, like, ethical dilemmas with this whole persuasion idea? Because I remember when I read that Cialdini book, you know, and obviously I was reading that because I was interested in what makes people change, you know, and uh, and wanting to help people change to healthier habits and all those sort of things. And, and you know, I felt like my my goals were quite altruistic, you know, I really did want to help people. But then as I started reading about these sort of strategies for persuading people and that they kind of feel a little bit manipulative at the same time. And so you sort of think, well, like, where's the line here between, like, me healthily trying to persuade someone to do something that I think is going to help them versus me, you know, convincing them to do something that maybe they don't want to do and, and who knows, maybe isn't right for them. Like, it, it seems like there's got to be a line there somewhere, but knowing where it is <laughs> in this sort of health space is an interesting thing to try and find, I reckon. Yeah, ethics. Um, I, you know, ethics and persuasion are always go together. There's, it's always an issue. But ultimately, look at it this way. Everybody, every, in fact, every being on the planet persuades, influences what's around it. It consciously does it. It wants you to do these things and stop doing these things. If you've been a parent, you realize that most of your existence is being basically, you know, telling the kids, no, you can't do this. And yes, I want <laughs> you to do this. So everybody has to persuade. The only difference in when you actually study rhetoric is that it becomes conscious. 
Uh, there are actually formal techniques, and you might actually get good at it. You know, <laughs> that's the scary thing. And yeah, yeah, and trust me, like like unethical people are looking for every you know way to persuade. So really good people should also learn every technique for persuasion. Because if you're going to do it, you might as well be good at it. And if especially if you have altruistic purposes, I'd rather t- train you and see you to be really effective at it than just guessing all the time. Yeah, well, and I think it's a great way to know when other people are trying to persuade you. <laughs> like, like once you read something like that and you understand these techniques and how they work, you just see them everywhere, and you're kind of like, "Oh, I know what you're up to. I see what you're doing there." You know, it's a, it's an interesting thing to have that little bit of knowledge. Yeah, and it's, you know, are you still there? Yeah, yeah, still here. Okay, so you know, like people again, a lot of people in America are upset about you know our president Trump and. I'm like, it's fine. He's just, he's a certain type of politician. But if, he, and he's kind of new. He imported all these entertainment techniques into politics, and people don't know how to deal with it. I'm like, well, in rhetoric, you study the techniques, and then you lay out all the counter, counter techniques, all the antidotes to what he's doing. <laughs> but nobody's doing that. They're just letting him push everything around. I'm like, there are clearly techniques you can use to stop him or to counteract him. But nobody's being trained on the other side to do it. So, for a rhetorician, it's kind of frustrating to watch. Like you know, you just keep you just keep making the same mistakes. If you want something, you know, practice, learn how to do it correctly, and then go out and, and execute on that. And health is the exact same way. I run into so many great ther- uh, great trainers and great nutritionists and great doctors, and they get frustrated because their patients won't do what they tell them to do. You know, the clients will not follow the programs. I'm like, well, that's not the client's fault. Hmm. That's your program's fault. You haven't figured out yet how to make it easy for them to follow what you want them to follow. Yeah. And that's that's kind of your job. Yeah. It is. It is. It's your job to, to teach people. Um, mate, this has been awesome. I've loved this conversation. I think what you're doing is fantastic. Uh, I think it's, uh, it's genius that you've combined your two geniuses with food and information and also with education and rhetoric and persuasion and uh, I think you're going to do some great things and, re- and really help lots of people so thank you so much for coming on the show today um, people are going to want to find out more about you uh, and obviously they can head to your website which is dansonlineuniversity.com um, they can find you on Twitter which is joke jazz um, and they can go to your live shows which are obviously happening all around America um, so you know many of our listeners are American and, and hey to you guys um, but also uh, hopefully you know, never know one day maybe some shows in Australia which would be awesome Dan yeah that would be awesome <laughs> <laughs> so thanks for coming on board mate yeah so much fun thanks for having me for everyone else until next week join the conversation on Facebook give us a 5 star rating on iTunes join our newsletter list at thatpaleoshow.com and let's help grow the paleo tribe worldwide join us next week on That Paleo Show this has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter The Wellness Couch streaming wellness into your lives Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.